You are listening to a sermon from the Mulvane Church of Christ in Mulvane, Kansas. Subscribe in your favorite podcatching app or find and listen to any sermon online at mulvanechurch.com slash sermons. Good morning. Good to see you all today. Today, we'll be talking about some concepts some concepts that we uh, say we appreciate and we think we'd like to see more of, yet we find in the world, even while people say that, they often don't, in practice, mean it very much, although we hope that's not true of us as well. It just seems like so often uh, justice and holiness are not things valued or sought uh, for in our society. Decisions seem to be made based on political considerations or power plays, control, attempts at control, or sometimes just pure meanness and spite just to be unkind or to to own the other side or to destroy the other side. Most of the time we mean that rhetorically and metaphorically, but occasionally some unhinged will take that kind of partisanship uh, to the next level and physically try to do those things. When things that we normally would value, like scripture, tradition, or science, uh, get brought into it, it's not uh, for uh, what they actually say or teach or do, but they're marshaled only to support the cause right now. And whatever these things might be have, have taught us in the past, if they're not useful for today's uh, cause, well, we just ignore them. Uh, or we'll use them one day and we'll cast them aside the next. It's almost like we use all of these uh, things, uh, tradition, uh, good traditions we've had, uh, the traditions that help us civil society work, or the actual knowledge that science has brought us, or the truth of scripture, or people, uh, we use them as pawns in the field. Uh, they're important for the position they can hold, for the damage they can do to the other side, for the impediment they cause for others. But as soon as they're no longer useful and that position is no longer important to us, we just treat them like they're cannon fodder and, and move along. And so in all of these things, we see this, this terrible spirit of the age of an unkindness and a power-seeking and a, a grasping at control uh, and a grasping at making sure that others can't tell us in any way what to do, these things have degenerated into the things common in the works of the flesh, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factioning, factions, and envying. These are the things which define so many people's lives these days. And they're always engaged in some kind of fleshly act of this kind. This is not what God wanted. Not long before Jerusalem was destroyed, Jeremiah was issued this challenge. He was told, Jeremiah 5.1, roam to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem. And look now and take note and seek in the open squares. If you can find a man, there's singular, is there one who does justice, who seeks truth, then I will pardon her. 
God didn't pardon. They didn't last a generation. But God desires, and God wants us to seek, to do justice and seek truth. As we mentioned in our Bible class this morning, when it comes to the creative aspect of man, how, do you t- how can you tell there's been human habitation in a place before? That something they've made has been left behind. We leave behind stuff we make everywhere. You can trace people's development and cultures and lines. You can just trace it by the tools and objects uh, and artifacts they leave behind. And that's because we've been made in the image of our creator. Well, our creator is the one who's the author of justice. He is truth. His word is truth. And he wants justice practiced and he wants truth sought. And you know what? Deep down, so do we. Our problem is, is in our corrupted nature after the fall, we all kind of get that a little twisted so that it's justice for us or for our side. And we're not so much interested for the other side. But because each one is seeking out for their own, and even when they say they want justice, they often have a bit of a perverted twist to it, uh, we find that in this world, justice is often thwarted. Justice doesn't occur uh, as, as we'd like. And we say the common laments of the modern age, that's not fair and that's not right. That's not fair and that's not right. And do you know how often it is in the world that things are not fair and not right? Often, usually. It's the common state of affairs. And yet, it is something we seek. And it's something that God seeks. God wants things to be as fair and right as possible. And so do we. It's not new in this. And God in his vengeance, and his holy justice, God will do things to set things right. That's one of the common ways we talk about justice, isn't it? That's one of the common ways we talk about punishment or liabilities. It's making things right. We have this from Psalm 94 on what God will do and why. Psalm 94, O Lord, God of vengeance, God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Winder recompense to the proud. How long shall the wicked, O Lord? How long shall the wicked exalt? They pour forth words and they speak arrogantly. All do wickedness and they vaunt themselves. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They slay the widow and the stranger and murder the orphans. Now, I'm not sure if that's a bit of hyperbole or that's actually what they were doing. But at least I think in this country we haven't got to the orphan murdering stage yet. Although, look at how the folks fight for the right to abortion. Maybe, maybe orphan murder, murdering isn't that much of a stretch. Verse 7, they have said, the Lord does not see nor does the God of Jacob pay heed. And so our desire for justice, our desire for things to be right, it's deep within us, it's ingrained within us, it doesn't have to be taught. But in this world, the more we want that, it seems the less it is that we have it, until the Lord sets it right. And so we dearly seek after the things that are right. We, we know within our bones that this should be 
And we lament greatly when these things are not. And there's this great unease about our souls. But we live in a society where so many things are not just. When there isn't holiness. And so like Psalm 35, we cry out, Lord, how long will you look on? Rescue my soul from their ravages. My only life from the lions. Lord, how long will you look on? So one side it says, the God of Jacob does not see. Let's do what we want. The other side says, Lord, how long? In Revelation 6, we find out that this might not even be something that's satisfied until eternity comes. Maybe not even satisfied in, in the time of death. In Revelation 6, there, there's a passage that's both troubling and comforting at the same time. In Revelation 6, 9, when the seals, the seven seals are there, when the fifth seal was broken, Revelation 6, 9, when the lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar, so here it is in heaven under the altar of God, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who'd been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony they'd maintained. So that's a troubling sight to see the souls of so many martyrs. It's comforting that they're there at the altar of God. It's comforting that the, 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 the enemy couldn't take them away from God and sever that relationship. And God has put them in this special place right by his altar, knowing that they are there. In verse 10, they cried out with a loud voice, the same as the psalm said, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth. That's troubling. The martyrs, even after their martyrdom, are presented as saying the words of the saints on earth, Lord, how long? Lord, how long? And so we think about the common cry of Christians, Paul mentions in his epistle, Maranatha, Lord, come quickly. Lord, how long are you going to put up with this? How long are you going to let this go? They were told to be patient, though, in Revelation 6, verse 11. It continues to say, And there was given to each of them a white robe. And they were told they should rest a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. A troubling passage and a comforting one at the same time. Here's the comfort. The martyrs are with God. The martyrs are given a white robe. The martyrs are given rest. The martyrs, it's a bright future for them in the things of God. But an unsettling passage. Because even in death they ask, how long, O Lord, holy and true, does this get to go on? And they're told, it's not done yet. There's more martyrs to come. Your number is not yet completed. There will be more of you to come. And so I'm not sure how much of this is an actual, you know, in the book of Revelation, is this a literal incident? Are there literal souls separated from other souls because of the way of their death and uh, they're, they're, that they're not satisfied even in the time of their death because of this? Or is this a poetic description of God saying, the people who are martyring my people, they have no idea what they're messing with and doing, no idea what's coming. 
I don't know. But here, the martyrs are seeking justice even after they're, they're dead. And so we have a deep need for things to be just. We have a deep need for things to be right. In the image of the one who created us, who made us want right? Who made us want justice? Who made us want fairness? Who made us want things like this? Why is that so common to us all? Well, we're made in his image, and that's what he is. He is the Holy One. We think about in the scriptures, sometimes he's the Holy One. Sometimes it specifies he's the Holy One of Israel. He's, he's, he's the Holy One who has a special relationship with people here on earth. It's inherent to him. That makes it even more amazing that he has such a relationship with people like Israel. Because was Israel a holy nation? Yes and no. In some ways very, in some ways very not. But Isaiah 43, 3, I am Jehovah your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. We need a Savior. He's the Holy One who does it. It's noted in the book of Revelation with the threefold affirmation of His holiness. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was, who is, and who was to come. Holy, holy, holy. This is this, the, the, one of the most basic things of his nature. Even the other things that it says he is, that he is love, for instance, or that he is patient, or that he has great loving kindness. You don't have this threefold affirmation that he's this, 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 like it is that he's holy, holy, holy. Now, that originally comes to us in Isaiah 6. And if you have a piece of paper or a wrapper or something from a cough drop or the what, like leave it here in Isaiah 6. We're going to come back to this passage in a minute. But we'll read now just the beginning of Isaiah 6. Because Isaiah was commissioned to ministry to be God's prophet. Isaiah 6, 1, in the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings, two covered his eyes, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And so the, the respect there, the covering of the eyes to not gaze disrespectfully on the Lord, the covering of the feet, going all the way back to the time of Moses, take your shoes off, this is holy ground. And so that which was impure was covered. And he flew around, the seraphim did, actually that's a plural word, so they flew around. And each one called out to one another saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And so he is holy, holy, holy. He is love, uh, but not threefold love. He's, he's love, for sure. The Beatles might have said, all you need is love, love, love. They had their threefold love, but that's the Beatles, not the prophets. There's a few differences. But he's merciful. But he's not mercy, mercy, mercy. He's good, it says in the scriptures, but he's not good, good, good. But of holy, to emphasize it, he's holy, holy, holy. It's him who can bring us holiness, makes us holy. And he is holy in all that he does. And even his governance of this world. And I think about how, how could a holy God have been the holy one of Israel, a very unholy place? Because he's also, though the holy God, 
He's the, the ruler of this world in, a, in the fullest sense, all, the one who ultimately will bring it all to account, the one who's ultimately responsible for it. I know there's a sense in which Satan is called the ruler of this world, but he's not a responsible ruler, is he? Can you imagine putting somebody in charge of anything and they treat it like Satan does this world? You'd, you'd remove them from that responsibility. You'd find somebody who does, does a better job. Well, Satan's going to be removed. But when, he, when Satan's removed, the earth and all its works will be burned up because it says in 1 John, Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. And he's going to destroy all the works of the devil. He's going to make us holy, destroy the work of the devil in our lives through forgiveness and sanctification. Or he's going to destroy the works of the devil in our lives by punishing us. And the only way to destroy all the works of the devil is to destroy this world in which Satan has corrupted and, and grafted himself into, it seems like, every last piece and corner. But God is not like that. God is holy in all he does. And he deigns for a while to deal with us and so many unholy situations for our good and our salvation. But when he speaks, he speaks from holiness Unlike we do and unlike Satan does, it's repeated twice, Psalm 60 and Psalm 108. Psalm 60, verse 6, Psalm 108, verse 7. It's the same exact words. God has spoken in his holiness. I will exalt and I will portion out Shechem and measure out the valley of Succoth. And that's where he says that Edom is my washbowl. And over Moab I have passed my shoe. These other nations, not holy to God, but here in Shechem, and Succoth, and it goes on to describe other parts of Israel. God will exalt them, and God will bring out his plan for his people. And he spoke that in holiness, and so they could know it would be. Or Psalm 89, once I have sworn by my holiness, I won't lie to David. And he promised David a descendant on his throne. And so we have Christ reigning on the throne of David, even to this day. Or Amos 4. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness. Behold, the days are coming, Israel. Sad days. They will take you away with meat hooks. And if there's any little pieces left, the last of you with fish hooks. He's going to get them all. And that's in his holiness. So his holiness might exalt. Or his holiness might destroy based on what he needs to do with those folks, because of justice. And so in all things, what he does is holy, bringing about a complete and utter holiness. So when he has a thing, it's holy. He has a holy temple. He has a holy place. The scriptures speak of a holy mountain. Talk about holy, with the, with the tabernacle and temple, a holy allotment, a holy chambers, a holy portion. In them are holy vessels. It was all brought by a holy covenant to make a holy people. There's a great prophecy about John the Baptist coming and he'll help bring about a highway of holiness. There'll just be this stream of people coming in a holy way to holy God. And so we have all these holy things that are dealt with by God and in God, bringing about God's purpose so that things will be in that way of justice, righteousness, and fairness and truth that we all say that we want.
Now, the one thing in that list of holy things that you don't find God being associated with, even though God does bring justice and vengeance, the one thing God doesn't do is, and this is one that most people who don't know the scriptures well would certainly think this would be the business of God, is with all those holy things, there's one thing not in the scripture, and that's holy war. Except there is one mention of holy war, but it's not by God. It's Micah 3.5. Thus says the Lord God concerning the prophets who lead the people astray. When they have something to bite with their teeth, so when you feed them well, when you pay them well, they cry, peace, peace. But against him who puts nothing in their mouth, they declare holy war. And so the false prophets, the ones who use God's religion as a way to enrich themselves and to get their living without the true holy work of God, those are the fellows who are on holy war. And it's against those who are against them. And so again, that's activity of the false prophet, not the activity of God. So even, you think about how could anything called holy be perverse? But with Satan in this world, How many perverse things are given the moniker of holy? That is how perverse the situation is. So God will one day set that right. And we think about us living in this world, and what can we do but be like those saints in the Psalms and those saints who were martyred, and what can we do but say, Lord, how long? Lord, O holy and true, how long until you set these things right? But then the Lord comes, and he does bring true holiness And there are exercises of God's holiness in in and among the people. And that's when we find, because of our own sin, true holiness is often objectionable to us. That we say we want holiness, we say we want right, we say we want fair. But usually that means I want fairness for me. What if one of the problems of fairness is you're not treating the other guy right? And fairness says, you need to change. You need to give him that. No, Lord, I didn't have enough myself. No. He said, no, what true fairness was, it's actually his. You see, that's when people, I, I don't think I like this thing so much. And so there's some times when there's some outbursts of holiness. And God's people objected. And don't think we might not if some things like that happen today too. In the book of Leviticus, there's that terrible story of Nadab and Abihu. Nadab and Abihu, Leviticus 10, the first, the first time people were worshiping in the tabernacle. Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took their respective fire pans, and after putting fire in them, they placed incense on them and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he'd not commanded. And fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. So they brought in a little extra fire, and they end up with a whole lot of extra fire. Then Moses said to Aaron, it's what the Lord spoke. But those who come near to me, by those who come near to me, I will be treated as holy. And before all the people, I'll be honored. So Aaron, therefore, kept silent. That would have been a hard worship service to continue, wouldn't it? Two of your sons there, smoldering. That's a tough day. Another tough day was 2 Samuel 6. 
And the anger of the Lord burned against, uh, against Uzzah. That's when they're moving the ark. And the ark began to totter. Uzzah reaching up to stay the ark so it didn't fall off and touch the ground. And it says, God struck him down there for his irreverence. And he died there before the ark of God. David became angry because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah. So that that place was called Perez Uzzah to this day. So David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So Aaron had to be told when the holiness of God was demonstrated, don't argue with it. Accept it. David didn't have anybody like Moses there that day. David became angry at the Lord. And he named the place in honor of the one the Lord struck down. That's how out of sorts and how angry David was. Can you imagine if in Acts 5, another case of the Lord's, uh, an outburst of his holiness to show that, yeah, I know that I, the, Jesus died for sins and you people in the church are the redeemed, but don't take sin lightly because when Ananias and Sapphira, when they both um, came and lied, they were struck directly by God saying, look, we're still taking this sin thing seriously. You got that, folks? Do you think the church uh, called the Ananias and Sapphira Memorial Chapel? Because they died there. Or in some places, um, I've seen where there's a plaque on a pew and somebody donated enough money to the church to buy a pew the last time they decorated the building and redid everything. And there'll be a little plaque on the pew that said, this pew is donated by such and such a family. You ever seen those situations? Would, 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 how many of y'all would want to sit in the pew that's Ananias and Sapphira Memorial Pew? We might as well just go ahead and put that on the front row because nobody's going to sit there anyway, right? Actually, I'd like to have an Ananias and Sapphira Memorial Pew. We put it in the very back. Nobody will sit there. But can you imagine, can you imagine in the church having a memorial to Ananias or Sapphira? But what they have in Israel? David was so upset that he named the place in honor of Uzzah. This is the problem. When God's real holiness is shown, it can be disconcerting. It can be surprising as to what is actually objectionable. Because we haven't looked at his way or studied what he wants. David asked this great question, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? You read the, over in uh, Second Chronicles, and, and you'll read about the fact that they did actually uh, eventually move that. Uh, excuse me, uh, yeah, Second Chronicles. You'll read that they did eventually move that, but they did it, it says, in the way the Lord prescribed with the Levites. That's how they did it. They did it in the way the Lord Lord. Lord said. So they had to go back and check the book. But the Lord's holiness, it will expose all the sin. And sometimes I think people have the idea that the, 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 Lord, the Lord's righteousness, it'll expose those guys' sin. It'll expose those other people's sin. And it certainly will that. Uh, John 3, 19 
This is judgment that the light's come to the world. Men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds are evil. Okay. Those evil people, they hide from this light. They hide from this holiness. They hide from this justice. I, for one, welcome this holiness, right? Don't you? Well, we say that sometimes flippantly. But if we really are in the presence of God, if we really understand where we stand, this can be overwhelming for the righteous as well. And so Isaiah 6, I said we'd turn back to that a while ago. Isaiah in that first year of King uh, Uzziah, he was called to go before uh, the throne of God. And he went there. And when he got there, he, he saw those seraphim. Uh, they're crying out, right? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts whose glory fills the earth. And then it continues on in Isaiah 6, 3. And one of them called out to another, these holy creatures. And they said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts who fills the earth with his glory. And the foundations and the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out. And the whole temple was filled with smoke. Then I said, Here's the words of Isaiah. I said, woe is me, for I'm ruined. Woe. I don't think we always get the full import of that word woe. Jesus says in the Gospels to some cities when they won't accept the Gospel, woe to Bethsaida, woe to Chorazin. In the book of Revelation, in some translations, it talks about the, the woe, seven woes that come. But sometimes the word Woe is translated as cursed. It's the opposite of blessing. Whatever blessed is, woe is the opposite. Whatever blessed is, cursed is the opposite. So, verse 5, then I said, woe is me, I'm ruined. Why? Isaiah says, because I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So I, the, the, the sin that Isaiah uh, calls to mind at first is the sins of his lips, the sins of what he says. Of course, what did James say about controlling the tongue? Restless evil, full of deadly poison, no one can control it. So if a man is perfect and doesn't control his tongue. So here's a common sin among men. Isaiah says, I'm un- I have unclean lips. I have sinful lips. I say sinful things. Verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he'd taken from the altar with tongs. Okay. It, it, coal out of the altar. You ever dealt with coals? I try not to touch them. Right? I try not to grab them. Uh, tongs is the appropriate way to move, to- move coals around. Because why? They're really hot. And he touches that to Isaiah's mouth. I got to say, that, that's an act of trust right there. Uh, how, many, how many of us want things uh, from other people touching our mouth? Stand still. This won't hurt a bit. Uh, well, maybe a little. Just stand still. Let me touch your mouth with this thing. Uh, no, thank you. Back up. How about something really hot right off the right out of the fire? 
I, I, the, the, the searing that must have been, just imagine, that would, he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sins are forgiven. So this was a, an act of forgiveness. He was purified by the coal from the altar of God, purified by, of what he had said, forgiven of his sinful mouth. Boy, don't we need that. That would be a reasonable trade for burning your lips on some coals, wouldn't it? Yeah. But thankfully, we, we don't have to go through an act like that. We have such grace in Christ. Is it belief in him and repentance? He has promised to forgive. But here's the thing. In order for us to stand in the presence of true holiness, we have to honestly, completely, and really deal with our sin. Otherwise, when we say we want holiness and righteousness and justice, we don't mean that. We mean we want that for the other guy. Or we want just judgment to be on the other guy, but not on us. And so we need forgiveness. And the, the only way we can be prepared for that and maintain that is real humility. And really ourselves seeking for justice. It won't just be by the form of religious things. It won't just be by religious activity. It'll be by real, heartfelt honesty and faith and real trust in the Lord. In Amos 5, we just got two verses to finish. In Amos 5, Amos gives a dire warning and a sobering warning to those, it says, who are, those of you who are longing for the day of the Lord. So how many of us want the day of the Lord? Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. We say, come on, Lord. But he says, Amos does in verse 18, for what purpose will the day of the Lord be to you? Oh, you want the day of the Lord, okay. But if it comes, what are you going to get out of it? He said, it will be darkness and not light. As when a man flees from a lion and a bear meets him. Or goes home and leans his hand against the wall. Oh, okay, I, got, I escaped. I mean, let me just lean against the door here and rest for a second. Let me catch my breath. I can't believe that all that was out there. He leans his hand against the wall and a snake bites him. You're not, you're not escaping. You're not escaping when God comes for you. What's that? That's a song Johnny Cash made famous a couple years ago. Sooner or later, God will cut you down. Yeah, you're not going to escape. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness instead of light? Even gloom with no brightness in it. And notice all the things that these people are doing that will not help them escape. I hate, I reject your festivals. All those yearly observances the Jews had. Nor do I delight in your solemn assemblies. So when you come together, maybe in some synagogue-like action, or maybe in some uh, uh, day of prayer at the temple, even though you offer up to me burnt offerings and your grain sacrifices, I won't accept them. I will not even look at the peace offering of your fatling. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I won't even listen to the sound of your harps. Well, that's pretty much the whole Jewish worship scene right there. We got festivals, solemn assemblies, burnt offerings, grain offerings, peace offerings, songs, and harps. In the Jewish religion, what else you got? And God says, I know you do all that stuff, but I don't want none of it because of the way you act. 
but instead let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. So don't go to church and act bad. Instead, pursue justice and righteousness. Is it asked in Micah 6 in verse 8? He says, what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. And so, there's so much stuff of unrighteousness and injustice and unholiness in this world. And there are some people who set off on grand crusades to try and solve it. But they're still, they don't love their neighbor. They, they don't believe in Jesus. They, they won't do the most basic things that God asks you to do. They do all these grand things. Or maybe they have this, this full-on religious calendar of things like the Jews of Amos 5 did. But what does God say? What do I really want from you? I want you to do justice. I want you to love kindness. I want you to walk humbly before me. And as we read from Isaiah, <laughs> some of y'all going to be, need to be forgiven, especially the things you say. And so that's the way we can seek true justice and true holiness in the things of which God has given us control and responsibility. There's so many things in this world, they're, they're just not my bailiwick. They're not my brief. They're not my responsibility. And it seems like, and if you pay attention to things in greater society, that's what everybody gets all wrapped up about. But what am I supposed to do? Oh, be forgiven. Not some of my lips. Walk humbly before God, loving justice and kindness. And in that way, we reflect the true holiness that God has called us to. What's the call from Leviticus repeated three times in the New Testament? Be ye holy as I am holy. That's the real holiness. Not these grand things or big acts, but this forgiveness, humility, and kindness. All right, with that, we'll close. This morning we ask if you need to come to Christ, the one who will forgive. Isaiah was forgiven by the touching of his lips by a coal from the altar. That's not the normal way. That's not the way that we've been given in the church. We've been given the blood of Christ. We've been asked for, to believe in him, to trust in him to confess him as Messiah, to repent of our sins and be baptized in his name. If you need to do this normal thing that we all can do to pursue this way of justice and holiness, the way of reward, the way avoiding the punishment at the end. Thank you for listening to this sermon from the Mulvane Church of Christ. Additional sermons and information available at mulvanechurch.com. Come see what a difference the Bible way makes.